Hey, how's it going, everyone? Good morning. Welcome to CIV. We are starting a new series uh, today, and it's a series where we're going to be looking at the story of Moses and the story of the Exodus. But the the focus of our series is not going to be Moses. Um, Our focus is going to be God. And what we're going to do in the next four weeks is we're going to be taking a look at how the story of Moses and the story of the Exodus, how God uses that to to show us his glory and his greatness and, and reveal more about himself. You know, Moses was a great man of faith. There's no doubting that. He was a man that the Bible has many positive things to say about, but he was also just a man. He was just a human being, just like you and me. He sinned. He had character flaws. And and really, the only reason we know about Moses is because God chose to use him, right? And there's a lot of verses in scripture that tell us, what God uses to tell us the, the point of the story of the Exodus. Here's some examples. Ezekiel 20 verse 9 says this, but I being God, acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God acted for the sake of his name. Psalm 106 says this in verse 7 through 8, when our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. And another example in Romans 9, 17, we're going to talk about this a little more next week, but for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's very clear all throughout scripture that the point of the Exodus story is, is not so that we would glorify Moses. He's just a human being. The point is that God is giving himself glory, revealing himself to us, revealing him uh, what he is like so that all may know who he is. I think Moses understood this. Moses understood his place before God. You know, at the end of his life in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses says this, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Now, if you think about that, that is an incredible statement because think about who is saying this. It's Moses. Think about all the things that Moses saw in his life. I mean, he talked to God in a burning bush, and he saw the 10 plagues. He saw the Red Sea, this giant sea just part before his eyes. He talked to God face to face, such that his face shone like the sun. He saw the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. And he says, after seeing all of that, you've only begun. God, you've only begun. I think Moses knows the truth. It is not Moses who is great. It's God who is great. So yes, we can learn a lot from Moses' example and Moses' faithfulness and even Moses' mistakes because he made many mistakes. But the focus of this series is going to be God. How does God show us his greatness? How does God reveal to us his glory through the Exodus story? And so today we're going to take a look at the burning bush. Now some background first. In Exodus chapter 1, we read about how the Israelites are growing in number in Egypt after uh, God brings Joseph to power. You can read about that at the end of Genesis. But Joseph brings his family to settle in Egypt, and Joseph and his generation eventually pass away. But the Israelites, as Exodus 1-7 says, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, and the land was full of them. So God blesses them, and they grow to vast numbers. Eventually, a new pharaoh rises to power in Egypt, and, and this pharaoh does not know Joseph, and he begins to fear the Israelites. He fears the power that they're building because of their, their numbers and their forces. So he makes the decision to enslave them, and he orders all the male children born to the people to be killed by being thrown in the Nile. 
And next to this chapter two, we read about Moses and Moses is born. His mother hides him in a basket and places him amongst the reeds of the riverbed to protect him from being thrown into the Nile and killed. And what ends up happening through God's providence and sovereignty, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes him in. uh, She allows Moses's mother to nurse her son and raises Moses up in the, in the Royal household. So already right from the beginning, you see Moses is dead without God, right? He wouldn't have survived, but God chose to, to protect Moses in his mercy and his sovereignty. Again, this isn't about Moses. This is about God. And Moses has this interesting upbringing because one, he is in the royal Egyptian household, but he's also being nursed by his mother. So he retains some of that, um, his Hebrew, his Israelite identity. Moses grows up and we see later in chapter two that he witnesses an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And in uh, a rash fit of anger, Moses kills that Egyptian and he hides him in the sand. Uh, And this is sin, right? Very clearly it's murder. This is not the right way to go about things. That's what Moses does. And then the next day he sees two Israelites fighting. He goes to intervene and they're afraid. They're like, oh, you're going to kill us too, is essentially what they say. Then Pharaoh hears about the murder, just kind of rolls downhill from there and he wants to kill Moses. So Moses ends up fleeing Egypt and he ends up in a land called Midian as a shepherd. And I think here a seed is being planted for us as the reader of scripture. The seed is Moses failed to deliver Israel in this moment. Just outright failed, right? He, he couldn't even deliver one Israelite without sinning by committing murder and just creating all this havoc and trouble, eventually getting chased out of the land. Right? And, and the seed that's being planted is Moses is not the one who's going to bring deliverance. He can't do it. He can't do it. But there is one who can. God so at the very end of Exodus chapter 2, we see this passage starting in verse 23, the very last three verses of Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. God saw, and through his power and sovereignty, he was preparing Moses to, to work through and to bring deliverance. Now, we also see here, God is revealing a very important part of his character in this passage, and this is going to be a theme that we're going to see all throughout Exodus, but especially today. He mentions the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is referencing the, the covenant in Genesis chapter 12 that's reiterated throughout the book of Genesis where God promises to make Abraham a great nation to bless him, that many nations will be blessed through Abraham. Now at this point, Israel is in bondage, right? Probably not a great nation or not what they were picturing, but God was about to change that because what God is revealing to him about himself through the story of the Exodus and through the story of Moses, that he is a promise keeper. He remembers his covenant. That is part of what he's revealing to us. And like I said, that's going to be repeated quite a bit through the next few verses. And so that's the buildup. And now we're in Exodus chapter three, and we're going to see Moses's encounter with God at the burning bush. So let's start in Exodus three, verse one. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Very reasonable reaction. 
<laughs> when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So here, right away, right, we see references to God's, God's holiness. We're going to talk about that in another message later in the series. But the focus here is, again, God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. Now, this is the first of four times in which God is going to say this in the, just this conversation with Moses. Again, one of the big things that God is revealing to, his, to us about his character is that he is a promise keeper. He remembers his covenant. He keeps his word, and he is faithful to do that. So let's keep going. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the, out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, who, who is the focus here? God, right? God is clearly the focus. I will do these things. I have surely seen. I have come down to deliver. And again, we see a reference to the covenant, right? God is uh, referencing his promise of, of blessing the people of Israel and bringing them into the land. Now, Moses is mentioned at the end of verse um, 10, if we go on to the next slide. Now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, but that you, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But again, it's I will send. It's I will send. The focus here is on God. Again, the idea is Moses surely cannot deliver Israel. He tried. didn't work. But God surely can. And God, as a promise keeper, remembering his covenant, will bring that about. Now, how do you think Moses responds? Verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Very different focus. Who am I? Focused on himself. Right? After all of this God focus of God's words, Moses is human focused, man focused. Who am I? And I think this is a teaching moment for us to pay attention to. You know, I think we've all been in situations where someone has come up to us and expressed doubt or fear about a, a task that they have to do, a responsibility that they have before them. You've probably been in that situation too where you felt doubt or fear about something. And, and I think our, our natural inclination to help that person is to say, no, you got this. You got this. You're great. You're smart. You can do it. Who are you? You're great. Don't worry about it. I think that's all our natural kind of bent on that kind of thing. But let's look at how God responds to Moses here. In verse 12, he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God doesn't object to Moses' statement at all. He basically affirms it. He's like, yeah, you are inadequate. Who are you? You are, you're nobody. But the difference is I will be with you. God will be with you. Who am I? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who Moses is. What matters is who God is. And God will be with him because God is the one who makes the difference. God is the promise keeper. God is the one we can trust. And so for us, when we find ourselves in these situations where we're trying to encourage someone who's, who's in, in fear or doubt or trying to encourage ourselves, this ought to be the focus. It ought to be that we're looking upwards and pointing people upwards, not inwards. Who am I? I'm nobody. 
but who is God? That is what matters. But Moses, he's, he's still unsure about all this. And so in verse 13, he brings up another objection. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, maybe this seems like an odd objection, like whose name is on the resume. Um, I think it makes a little more sense if you think of the, the culture of the time at which this is happening. Names were very important. Names often had significant meaning. They, they said something specific about the, the character or the person. Um, and Moses' name, for example, sounds very similar to the Hebrew word to draw out because he was drawn out of the water. So his name references that. And, and of course, there are many gods, little g, gods, but many gods that are being worshipped at this time of history. So, you know, I think, I think the question makes sense. Moses is going from asking, who am I? Well, who are you? Right? What, what, are, what is the name on the resume? What, what are the credentials? And what follows, how God responds to this, is just a very powerful expression of, of self-revelation on who he is and what he's like. In verses 14 and 15, very famous passage. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am. This famous passage, God is revealing his glory, his greatness to Moses by giving us his name. It's, it's Yahweh. Whenever you see the word Lord printed in all capitals in your Bible, that's what that is referring to. It appears over 6,000 times in the Old Testament, far more than any other name or reference to God. Like, for example, the word, the actual word God, Elohim or El, is just there a couple hundred times, but Yahweh, 6,000 times. This is the main way that God is referring to himself and revealing himself in the Old Testament. There's, there's a ton of depth of meaning in this statement. I, I know that I can't really do it perfect justice here, not even close to perfect justice, but, but there's some ideas captured in this. The first one, he exists. God exists. I am. Now, maybe that's kind of stale in our mind as believers. We, we know this. But this is a, a profound idea that there is a God. He exists. We're not here by random chance or something like that. We were created by an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. And if that's true, that changes everything about how we ought to live our life. He is. I am. He exists. Second, this implies, you know, he has always been. He is, he is infinite. And that's really hard for us to wrap our, our minds around, I can't even remember the first couple years of my life, let alone all of eternity, but, but God always has been. He owes his existence to no one. No one created God. No one came before God. He has always been, and that means all things, all reality comes from him. He, he defines it. There is no reality apart from God. This also means he always will be. He is, right? He always will be. Be. It's as Revelation 1.8 says, he was and is and is to come. He doesn't change. He is. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8, uh, there's no shadow or variation due to change in him. James 1.17, he just is. And that is a very, very convincing resume, I think. Right? Whose name does Moses go in the, in the name of? I am. Powerful. It's a really powerful Statement And what God does next, I am, is he goes into detail telling exactly what he's going to do in Egypt to the letter. Take a look at this passage, verses 16 to 22. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, there it is again, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, he is a promise keeper. It goes on in verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand because it is mighty and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And then in verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now again, if I am tells you that, that's pretty convincing, I think. If the God who always was, who always is, has always existed, who defines reality, gives you that promise, I think it's pretty clear, right? We see how God is making it super, super clear that he is a promise keeper that he is sovereign, that he can make this come about. And we know the Exodus story. We've all read it, hopefully many of us. This is exactly what happens to the T. This is exactly what happens word for word because God is indeed a promise keeper. God is indeed powerful enough to make this come about exactly as he says. But Moses is still not convinced. He's still focused on himself. He still is asking these questions of who am I? Who am I? So we keep going in Exodus chapter 4. Verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. And then I think it goes on in the next slide. Yeah, but the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord... Here it is again, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So your God is demonstrating his power, right? He turns the staff into a snake and back again. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week when we take a look at the plagues and, and what happens at the Red Sea. But, but the symbolism here is clear. Right? Just as Moses shows mastery over this snake by being able to pick it up by the tail and not being worried about it coming back and biting him, so God is about to demonstrate his mastery over Egypt and over everything by what he's about to do through Moses uh, and in the Exodus. In the next few verses, we see God giving Moses a couple more signs. At first, he turns his hand leprous and turns it back again. And then he tells Moses if the Egyptians do not believe those two signs, he'll turn the Nile into blood, which is the first plague. Again, we'll talk more about that next week. But the, the focus here is on what God can do, right? And what Moses cannot do. I am does whatever I am pleases. Moses cannot do that. I am has the power to bring about what I am has promised. Moses cannot do that, but I am is sending Moses. And so Moses doesn't need to fear or doubt because I am as a promise keeper. God remembers his covenant, but Moses still doesn't see that. Verses 10 through 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach 
you what you shall speak. Again, same idea. Who am I? Who am I? This is what Moses is focused on here. And again, God is telling him, it's not about you. I created your mouth. Think about what I have done. I will tell you exactly what to say. I am the promise keeper. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob created your mouth. But again, Moses is still not convinced. And in verse 13, we get to the final, the final objection of Moses. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. And then it goes on to end in verse 17. He shall speak for you, the, for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I think here Moses finally gets to the heart of it. He just doesn't want to go. Right, after all these excuses and objections, he just really doesn't want to go. And I don't know, I, I relate a lot to Moses here. I know there have been many times in my life where I know God is wanting me to do something. But whether due to fear or doubt or, or rebellion, I, I just don't want to do it. Intellectually, I understand God is a promise keeper. I know that when he says these things, they will come true. And that I can walk not in, in fear, but in confidence in that. But sometimes I just don't want to do it. And I think you all have probably experienced the same thing. And I think God's reaction here is something we need to pay attention to when we do that. First, he's angry, right? He has righteous anger because Moses is in sin here. He has crystal clear direction, about as crystal clear as you can get. A burning bush is talking to him. Crystal clear direction. And that's not something to take lightly. Now, we may not have this type of experience, right? but we have the Bible. We have the very words of God too. And so when we encounter something in scripture, the, the very clear commands to, to share our faith, to forsake the world, to give, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We can go on. But when we see that and we do not obey, that is a serious thing. We have revelation from God. We know what he wants us to do. And when we don't obey that, that is sin. That is something that we should not take lightly for God certainly does not take that lightly. The other thing I think we see in this passage though is compassion. God offers to send Aaron as a helper. God is, God is very gracious and looks to help us as we put his word into practice, as we look to fulfill what he has called us to do. So we too can also look to him for help when we are tasked with these things that to us maybe seem impossible or very difficult. Right, he gives us the spirit. He calls it the helper in John chapter 14. The spirit aids us and, and helps us in walking with God. So we can look to him for help in times of doubt or disobedience. I think the last thing we see is God has a refusal to compromise. Moses still has to go. God doesn't need Moses. He could have just sent Aaron. Aaron Aaron's a person too, right? God could have just used Aaron, but Moses at the end of the day still needs to go because it's Moses' task. I'm, I'm reminded very much of, of Jonah and what we talked about in the last series. Right? Jonah doesn't want to go, but he couldn't run from God forever. He still had to eventually go to Nineveh because that was his God-given task. And the same is true for Moses. There's nothing special about Moses. Moses could have, cho uh, God could have chosen to use whoever he wanted. But in this case, he chose Moses. And so God, you know, if we go back to the last slide, God kind of just ends the conversation, right? Go, don't forget your stick, go. But that's really just what Moses is, right? He's just a human being holding a piece of wood. And he's about to go talk to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, leading the most powerful nation on the planet and demand that he release his entire workforce holding a stick. But what's the difference? He's going with I am. The promise keeper has sent him to 
do this, and I am keeps his promises, and that is what is going to make all the difference in Egypt. So that's the end of our passage today. What, what, what can we apply from this? What, what, what we, can we learn about God? And when we're faced with our God-given tasks, you know, how can we respond? Well, I think what we need to learn from this is we need to start moving from who am I to who are you? You, God, right? Who am I to who are you? Who am I? I'm inadequate. I'm not enough. I fall short every single day, all the time. You know, the world around us hates that idea, though. Right? The world around us is all about self-esteem. You are enough. You can do it. You can do whatever you set your mind to. Well, that's just not true. You are inadequate. You are not enough. You cannot do it. But there is one who can. That's the difference. There is one who can. And when we stop focusing on ourselves and instead turn our eyes upward towards God, towards the promise keeper, toward the ones who can do all these things, and then start faithfully obeying him, coming alongside him and what he is doing in the world, that's when we see, wow, God does keep his promises. Wow, God is mighty and can do whatever he wants. Wow, what he says in the Bible is indeed true. And we see that when we walk in obedience towards him, stopping to, stop focusing on who am I and instead thinking, who are you, God? Who are you? So what can you do to practically get better at this and improve in this area? Well, I think John 15 um, gives us some great instructions. At this point, uh, Jesus is talking, and it's right after the Last Supper. He's just promised the Spirit to the disciples, the Helper. That's in John 14, 26. He's a promise keeper. He does indeed give them the Spirit. Um, But he promises that to guide them. And then he says this in John 15, starting in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can I, or neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From, from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It goes on in verse 7 and 8. And if you abide in me, and my word abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now look at the truth there. If you go back one slide, we can do nothing Nothing apart from God. Nothing. Just like Moses, we are, we are inadequate to do it. So the key is to abide in the one who can, God, Jesus Christ. Right? We cannot bear fruit apart from Christ. This word abide comes from the Greek word meno, which literally means to stay in a place. It means to stay or to stay in an expectancy even. So the idea is we need to stay in Christ this looks like many different things. We trust in him. We pray to him. We obey him. We take steps. Right? We rely on the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us do that because we certainly need help to do that. But the result, the promise in verse 5 that God gives us is if we do this, we will bear fruit, much fruit even. And so therefore glorify God, which is what we are meant to do. Um, a story that, that came to mind when I was thinking about this is I'm, I'm terrified of public speaking. You guys are very scary. Um, <laughs> I, I remember back in high school, I would visibly shake like this, holding a piece of paper, trying to deliver some presentation on World War II or whatever I was talking about. And my legs would like go like this, like shaking, sweat pouring down. The only way I could really do it coherently is if I was behind a podium. This is too thin. You can see my legs shaking. Um, but I had to be behind a podium so that I, I just wouldn't feel like naked and exposed in front of everyone. 
Remember the first time I spoke at Christian Challenge, which is the college ministry I volunteer for, I felt physically ill before. I think Neil was standing next to me. I thought I was going to throw up on Neil, which would have been a memorable message, but not in the way I wanted to do it. Why? Why was I like that? Because I was focusing on myself. Who am I? Who am I to deliver this message? Who am I to say all these things? Who am I? Who am I? And I realized I'm no one, right? I'm no one. I'm inadequate. I'm not enough. I can't do this. But there is one who can help me. So I remembered, eventually, after a couple of worship songs, that this isn't about me. This is about God. And God, indeed, is a promise keeper. So God, who are you? And that just kind of clicked in my brain. I just stopped to pray. That's what abiding in Christ looked like in that moment for me. I just stopped to pray and said, God, you, kind of these things that we're talking about with Moses, God, you created my mouth. You wrote down these words in the Bible. You gave me what to say. Um, I know I can do nothing apart from you. So would you just help? And that really helped. Um, that really helped. And God, and God, I think, did something with that message. The Spirit, Spirit really helped me through that, and I was asked to do it again. And I still pray that every single time. Every single time. Because I know no matter how many times I do this, no matter how comfortable I get, I've gotten a little more comfortable. My legs aren't dancing all over the place. But I can do nothing apart from God. I can bear no fruit apart from him. I'm just some guy with a stick, just like you, right? We can do nothing, just like Moses. We are totally dependent on God. And so the, the conclu- conclusion I've come to is I, I don't think it's surprising that the area in my life where I see so much fruit, much fruit, is also the area where I feel the most clearly dependent on God, where I know so clearly that this is God, not me. And see, that's the danger of focusing on ourselves, on asking, who am I? Because if we think this verse, verse 5, 15, John 15, 5, is apart from me, you can do some things, well, then I get some glory. If I could do some things, I get some of it. And you can see how just subtly we start to steal the glory of God and give it to ourselves and we think that I am able to do these things apart from God, but you're not. You're not. Eventually, we all find that out. So it's to him be the glory and him alone. So what we need to do is learn to abide in Christ, to stay with Christ, trusting in him, praying to him, obeying him, walking in step with the spirit as our guide so that more and more and more we can move from who am I, which doesn't matter, the answer doesn't matter, to who are you, which makes all the difference. God didn't need Moses, right? God makes that abundantly clear. God could have done whatever he wanted. He could have talked to Pharaoh in a burning bush and saved a lot of time, right? He could have just flattened Egypt if he wanted to, but he didn't. He chose Moses to be his servant in this, in this story. And he does the same with us. We all get to play a part in what God is doing in the world. We get to play a part in advancing his kingdom and making his name known and bringing him glory. Why? Not so that we would get glory, but that he would get glory, but that he would get glory. And as we do that, we get to see his glory up close because as we walk in obedience with him, we see more and more, wow, What you said is true. You are indeed a promise keeper. The Bible is real. And when we put it into practice, we see that. And as verse 8 says, more and more people see that too. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As we bear fruit in our lives by putting these things into practice and realize because it's not not because of us. But instead, we turn to praise God and give God the glory in every moment. People, People notice that. People hear that, people see that, and God's name is made known 
as it rightly should be, just as he does with the Exodus story. So let's abide in Christ. And let's come back next week because what we're going to see, we're going to see this put in practice in Moses' life. As Moses faithfully obeys, eventually he does go to Egypt. He gets a front row seat too to see the glory of God again and again and again as he takes steps to obey and, and abide in God. Such that he can say that astounding statement in Deuteronomy chapter 3. You know, oh Lord, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who could do such works and mighty acts as yours. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your revelation to us of who you are. Thank you that you are a promise keeper. Um, you promise that through Christ there is forgiveness and salvation. We thank you for that, that we know we, we can have hope in that because we know it's true. And there's so many other promises. Lord, I pray that you would help us remember who you are, and that we would not focus on ourselves, that we would remember who we are, that you would humble us, and we would learn more and more who you are, God, and you would reveal yourself more and more to us. So thank you for preserving this story of the Exodus. Thank you for using Moses to show us that you are a promise keeper and the many other things we're going to talk about, Lord. We love you. We thank you so much for what you're doing. In your name we pray these things. Amen.